How's everybody's energy? You ready for more self-discovery? More, as Paul would say, more bad news? You know, that's okay. It's important to attend to our environment. It's the dish in which we grow, the Petri dish. <laughs> so, so, okay, what is the, what, focus. We will now explore the impact of providing spiritual care on you over time. Um, because I, I, we've kind of hinted at it, and some of you have, have raised how quickly you're being called into more service where you are serving, and how that's a bit overwhelming, and how is that sustainable, and so forth. So we're doing this in two parts. I'm going to do the first part. Jennifer will do the second. I'm going to talk more about the impact of providing spiritual care, how it impacts you in your personhood, your identity, how it impacts your spiritual practice, your beliefs and values. So, so I want you to think of this as a window pane. Personhood, identity first pane that's you know a window pane with a cross so it's kind of like the old-fashioned windows in the ranch houses here in uh, redwood city so personhood identity the first pane second pane is spiritual practice beliefs and values you know that whole spiritual domain that has kind of brought you here the third is health and we'll focus primarily on physical health there but psycho-emotional health is also part of that and then the fourth is relationships because those are the four areas where the impact of the care you're providing are likely to show up in very tangible ways and why is that well you know, providing this kind of presence, it's a psychodynamic process, meaning that it's active. And it's active not only in the bodies and psyches and organizations that you're present to, but in you. It's interactive. And it constantly, I think of it as troubling the waters of who we think we are. It troubling the waters of our practice, what we really believe about illness, what we really believe about death and dying, what we really believe about families. Anything someone says to you is going to strike something in that regard. Um, and the energies and health of our bodies, you know, those change over time all, as well. And you, you go to these places that where illness and trauma is concentrated, where incarceration, lack of freedom, the, the trauma, the, uh, the environment of constriction and fear that is is there, is so active, um, and that impacts you. It impacts us really profoundly. And we get used to it in a certain way. You know, the first time you go, that's one experience, and then you go again, and then you kind of, you know, you kind of get your chops. You feel like, oh, I'm doing pretty well with this. And you may not even notice the impact it's having on you unless you're very... um, intentional about taking the time to reflect individually and with others. Uh, And then finally, it shows up in your relationships, and that may be the place it shows up the fastest. So I'll give you some examples so you can kind of begin to identify that for yourself. 
So what is it that tends to come up? What are those edges kind of as they're sanded? What, is, what does it look like? It, I think whatever's unfinished or ready to be addressed kind of jumps out right away. So it, we talk about something being activated or something being triggered. Um, and I think we all have those moments. Uh, and the, the key is to learn to begin to notice them. I, I think I've shared with this group before, with us before, an example of when I was a chaplain in training and a nurse was getting um, an ICU patient who'd been in a terrible car accident settled, and she said, I just hate taking care of drunks. And the patient was unconscious, but still, she said it in the patient's presence. I was, like, totally horrified. Um, and... In working with that incident, uh, I didn't say anything. I'm a chaplain in training. I'm a pretty cautious person. I'm really respectful of my culture and uh, so forth. So I, I didn't challenge her then. But as part of my training, I was encouraged to have a conversation with her about it and to go into that over time. And so that became a very rich learning for me. And it was one statement that she made, one statement. It still sticks with me. What it triggered in me is there's a lot of alcoholism in my family, and you never talk about it. And the fact that someone would talk about that with a patient, I mean, you could just see all the different layers that could be there that were very rich for unpacking. Um, Another chaplain could have heard that one could have gone right by him, you know? What what we hear and what opens us up and what we have to work with, it's very specific uh, in particular to our our history, our karma, all of that, um, and, and learning that about ourselves and opening the lens wide enough to accept it, that it is about us, is it takes great humility and great patience. So a lot of what we'll also encounter are limits and boundaries about who we are, um, and it takes quite a bit of trial and error to learn, you know, when to hold fast to, to who we think we are, when to gently stretch and expand our capacities for presence or other caregiving, you know, when to step back from the edge, or when, as Paul and Gil were saying, when to push forward, when to lean in. It, it depends. It depends. Uh, and you can't know until you practice it. So let me give you an example when I was um, first in the hospital, probably in my early 40s, and when I was assigned to um, the critical care unit, I was in a hospital in Camarillo, Camarillo, Oxnard. There's a really huge population of immigrant farm workers and a very established population of, of Latino people and families, and multi-generational families, um, a lot of Spanish-speaking families. Well, I learned Spanish in college. Now, I heard Spanish growing up from my grandparents, but I never considered myself a fluent Spanish speaker. And when I was first asked to use my Spanish in service of patients, it was a, I had a very complex response to that. Well, you know, I'm a fifth-generation Californian. We haven't spoken Spanish at home in quite a while. Why are you asking me that? So first of all, it was challenging my own self-image and my self-understanding of who I was as a, as a Latina uh, and whether that in, in, it, it was required that I speak Spanish to be a Latina um, and the different people's reactions to, to that with me. Um, 
And then one of the doctors said, well, I heard you conversing with that family. Would you translate for me while um, I meet with them? This is like my only time. And I know I'm like a deer in the headlights. And I said, um, I'm not fluent. I can't do that. You know, I don't think that would, that's beyond the scope of what I can do. And so I sat and one of the other family members translated in that situation, but it got me thinking, you know, it kept coming up, it kept coming up. And so after some discernment, I kind of brushed up my conversational skills and was able to work a little more in that space conversationally. Now, I never had the hubris to do medical translation. I was always very careful about that. But it was something where I kind of grew. My sense of identity kind of began to embrace that, and I relearned how to kind of be conversational with Spanish in a way that was useful in, in that capacity. That was a slow process. It won't always be so slow, but that was a slow process that I was able to invite in. Um, And I I don't know if there is anyone else here who is part of kind of a community where you don't think of yourself as just a United States person or citizen, even though, like in my case, five generations on one side, 20 uncountable generations on the other on my mother's side. Anyway, um, but who we think we are will be impacted. So I think... Often we learn by mistakes. So um, when you talk about, you know, the spiritual sense of who I am as a, as a spiritual caregiver and so forth, I, I kind of thought of myself, as, I was a mother at this point, I thought I was pretty patient, I was pretty good at sitting with people in various kinds of suffering. I thought I was uh, presenting myself in that kind of way. And I remember asking one of the... Um, professional chaplains who'd already finished CPE while I was still in it for some feedback so that I could put that in my peer review. And she said, uh, we had had a lovely conversation. She was an Irish nun and she had been the superior in her order. And, you know, this was her like fourth career. Um, And she must've been in her seventies at the time and sister Mora. And she said to me, well, Christina, she said, you know, nobody can argue with the fact that you're just stellar with patients and families. And I, I heard a but coming, but, but she said, but you know, you have this tendency to sort of rush through the break room and not stop and say hello and to find out how people are. And it was like the scales fell from my eyes and I thought I was so invested in doing this really well with those who were assigned to me that I kind of had blinders about how I was impacting my peers and who I was in the group itself. And while my belief system says that's very important, um, that is not what I was living out. So what I really believed was what matters is what I'm doing with the patients. It doesn't matter so much what I'm doing with my peers. Um, It really opened my eyes to that, you know. Everyone matters or no one matters. If I say I believe that, how do I live that? And then also to have the kind of patience with myself that my energies are limited. I'm an introvert. Um, Sometimes I really don't want to talk to my peers. So how do I do that and yet not be 
disrespectful or unkind to them and, and their humanity. Now, those kinds of things come up. It's very simple. It's not complex. It's just this kind of daily grind of, of watching that impact that we have on others and they have on us. I think we're really gifted. You are really gifted. We are really blessed in this particular skill of self-observation because of the practice. Everyone here has spent enough time on the cushion and with the Dharma to have an experience of that gap between something happening, how it feels, what's coming up for us, and how it arises and lives there and then passes away. Um, What this asks of us because of the impact on us over time is that we become more and more finely tuned to that walking around observation so that it's not just when we're meditating, although it'll come up then, it's not just in our conversation with a supervisor or a helper or a mentor or a teacher, but that the goal is that in the moment we will recognize it. And we'll do that more and more with more and more ease and self-compassion so that we can respond not only skillfully then, but also over time know where we belong and know what the impact of this work is having on us. So, for example, um, kind of a less immediate, but something that changed for me profoundly over the years of providing spiritual care at the end of life the very beginning of it, um, I had a a lot of interest and curiosity and um, compassion, but not a lot of experience of being with people who were dying. And so I would approach that as sort of someone who was accompanying without knowing much about it, Uh, began to learn a little more, get a little more experience, begin to be able to be there a little more with a little less curiosity of, of an invasive nature and a little more just presence, um, trusting, you know, trusting things would go the way they needed to go, begin to be more, I, I would say, sort of a midwife with it, um, kind of brought a, a deep satisfaction, a deep uh, sense of I'm learning about the mysteries of life and death. That's why I came into this work. I think that's why I was called to it. Um, profound experiences of all kinds. And then probably five years into sort of specializing in that particular part of the work, I noticed that I was beginning to get a little bit weary. Um, I've always had the supervisor. I have a therapist. I have a practice. I have a family who loves me. I don't think it was impacting my relationships. But I could sort of feel something in my body that felt saturated with death. And that was not happy news. I was a palliative care chaplain. So I ignored it. Um, I was aware of it okay, I'm kind of having some burnout, I need to take a longer vacation, this and that, whatever. Finally, it became really clear, I am not able to bring the same quality of pristine presence to this, to the people I'm serving that I was. Uh, I 
I noticed I was spending a lot more time with with um, other caregivers, and that's useful ministry too. That's useful service to be able to listen to your peers and so forth. But to go into one more room and meet one more family with one more dying patient, I just couldn't do that with that same level of caring and enthusiasm. So I decided to kind of make a move, and I did. Um, moved into more supervisory work and less direct patient care with dying patients. A lot of solutions to those kinds of information that's coming at you, but I I, I got this sense at one point where I was so kind of without zest, you know, that was kind of the final thing, that I thought, oh, I might I might get sick. If I don't make a change, I might get sick. It's important to listen to those cues um, so that even what's exactly perfect for us in this work at a given time, it changes, it shifts, and we flow with it. We flow with it. Because we come to it to serve. You know, That's our conscious desire, and that's what we learn our skills for. But who knows why over time being in a particular situation or a particular setting or working with the particular population that we have absorbed something too much, whatever, and it's just time to do something different. Um, And I imagine that, you know, some of the strategies and some of the approaches that you can take to this will be different for different people. And Jennifer will have some good ideas about that and some ways of working on it. Um, One funny story about relationships, I was thinking about this when Jennifer was talking about bonding. I remember when I went into this work, my youngest daughter was, I think, about eight um, and I remember when she was 12, so I'd been doing this for a while, and I, I kind of, you know, was a really good active listener and all that good stuff. And she was telling me something about school one day, and I'm kind of listening and listening, reflecting, and listening. She goes, Mom, Mom, I don't need you to be a chaplain. I need you to be my mom. And I realized that, you know, talk about when we should be in our role and when not, I was being a chaplain I was not listening like a mom and her need was for me to be a mom and that was appropriate so uh we still laugh about that she's almost 30 now but you know it shows up in our relationships when we've become over identified with the role which is another sign that uh, another potential impact of the work on us and I imagine we've all had that experience with um philodharma teachers with therapists or whatever when we're not in a session and they're talking to us like that and it's like oh my gosh would you please just be present to me as a human being so it over identifying with the role um in that personal identity pain that you have there can be something that comes up and can be a sign that you know maybe we're a little bit more impacted than we realize so boundaries in general are are really um kind of sanded and I think of it kind of like the cling wrap comes off your unconscious and it starts kind of pop bubbling up especially when you're in a new situation and doing a lot of new learning and so you're kind of really open um and so where where how do you see that and where do you take that and what is the impact of that on you um 
we've talked about aversive reactions and, you know, kind of wanting to get away or not wanting to engage. We've talked about wanting to bond. What we haven't talked about, and I think it's important also as a common experience, is you can fall in love with some of your patients and some of the situations that you're in and become a little bit too invested in ways that you're not completely in control of, your, your psyche isn't completely in control of, um, that that one person in your group that you're bringing um you know, teaching to in the prison, or uh, the patient who who's just so appreciative of what we're, whatever it is for you, but you can be so attracted, so drawn, it begins to take uh, uh, create rumination when you're not really with the person, and it is. It's a kind of falling in love. So that's also something you can not only be pushed away, we can be pulled in. And that's just a very human. It's a place where we really need to be very clear about the boundary, and if we aren't clear, we need to have some professional person to talk to about it. Uh, but that's also an impact sometimes that we're working too much, we're invested too much in this, um, and uh and that maybe there's something we really need to learn, but it's not about being in relationship with the person. It's a professional relationship, and it needs to stay that way. Um, also happens among chaplains and groups a lot. But anyway, it's like, I guess, the Dharma romance. Um, yeah, I definitely wanted to talk a little bit about that. Okay, so the last thing I want to I want to do is actually have you practice a little bit, getting in touch with uh, a, a, an encounter that you've had that's troubling, and we'll do this in a little bit of a guided meditation way, and at the end of a short guided meditation, as you're you've called to mind the um, encounter that you really want to unpack, I'm going to ask you just to write about that. So this will be for you, and what you do with that after uh, is up to you. But I I want to have you have a little experience with really identifying a situation where some aspect of your identity has been touched in an encounter, some part of your spiritual belief about whatever has been touched, um, some element of your health, you kind of have felt activated, you know, you haven't felt well after an encounter, whatever, um, or you've seen something show up in another relationship not related to the place where you're serving that is troubling to you and you're just kind of unsettling and you kind of would like to look at it. Because those are the sensitivities, I guess I would say, that are important to kind of follow up on for yourself. So I'll give specific instructions, but does anybody have any question or anything that they would like to offer at this point? Can you say again the four quadrants? So kind of your, your sense of self, your, your, your personhood, your sense of identity, you know, um, any aspect of it, but who you think you are and how that kind of got bumped up against in some dimension of your service. Um, your spirituality, what you really believe, however you name that for yourself, your practice, that got challenged in a way that was unsettling. Uh, Anything that relates to your health, your body, what's going on there. And then finally, your your relationships. You you, you noticed a spillover from an encounter that kind of showed up in 
a relationship at home or with a friend or somebody here, whatever. Does that help, Kater? Okay, so I'm going to ask you to just kind of get settled, comfortable in your chair, your seat. And just kind of gently close your eyes and take a few good breaths and let your attention move within. Just as your eyes are closed and you're sort of gently settling and claiming kind of a space that's just yours around you, let bubble up into your mind an encounter in your volunteer service that you've had while being in this program. Whatever bubbles up for you that you'd like to explore. And you don't need to think about it too much. The one or two or three that have energy, one of those will pop up for you. And this would be an encounter where you felt unsettled in some way. Might be with respect to oh, I don't have the skill for this, or this person is not really seeing who I am. Oh, they're really wrong about death. What they're telling me makes no sense based on my experience. Whatever it might be. Maybe you felt your body getting really tight. You might have had physical symptoms of getting dizzy or feeling um, nauseated, disoriented, or a rush of anger, fear. You might notice yourself in this scenario that comes up for you, the memory it might come up because you were having a cascade of thoughts and weren't really present to the person. So as you have that in mind, I'd like you to review it from the start of the encounter. So remember how you first approached the person? wherever they were, walked into the room, entered the space where they are in some fashion. See that as clearly as you can in your mind's eye. What it felt like, what time of day it was, how your energies were flowing, tired, energetic 
begin to replay and don't worry about being exactly accurate about what was said or not said, but as best you can, recall how you begin to engage with the person, what you said, what they said. Or maybe you were sitting, were you standing? What about the other person? Physically, what was the space between you? Continue with the encounter up to the point where you began to notice that you were unsettled, uncomfortable, um, something wasn't going in an easy way. You began to kind of, huh, there was a stop for you, a pause of some kind. And maybe you didn't remember that at the time, but afterwards you remembered and now you're reliving it with that awareness that came up later. Right at the point where you first noted the discomfort arising, the unsettled feeling arising, how did you notice that? Was it a sensation in your body? Pinch or a spurt or pulling away with your back. So many ways our bodies can talk to us. Maybe you shifted eye contact. Maybe your first sense of discomfort was emotional. Ooh, I'm feeling uncertain. Or, wow, that really makes me angry. But before the words, it would be the feeling, just anger, fear. Attraction. Some felt sense, which might have led to an emotion. Or maybe it was caught at the level of thought. Oh, wow, I really don't like that, what she just said. You are already at judgment. For this exercise, it's not important what happened next, what you said or did, or what the ultimate outcome of the encounter was. It's really that arising of the discomfort in all the dimensions that you can experience and recall. I want you to attend to, just witness.
And when you're ready, when you feel that you've learned as much as you can, identified as much as you can about that experience, just open your eyes and write down your thoughts and see what more might come to you about it as you note your observations of that particular situation and its unsettling, uncomfortable quality for you. And we'll take about, oh gosh, five to eight minutes to do that. So on a scale of 1 to 10, how 1 being completely at ease and 10 being totally freaked out, how uncomfortable was that experience, was that exercise for you? So who would say 5, 6, 7? Is high. The experience of reliving it. Yeah. Okay, eight, nine, ten. Good. That's great. That's great. Because having access to that, I think, is what can really help um, unpack. And unpack when you've stepped away and it's for your benefit. And uh, hopefully ends up not in bad news, but in a sense of great compassion for yourself and a little more understanding of why, what's involved. Great. Well, okay, Jennifer, now you get to give them all the answers. Great. Thank you. So I'd like to pick up it up and start with um, my view that to be impacted by providing spiritual care is not blameworthy. So if you're blaming yourself, thinking I'm doing it wrong, I invite you to take that out of the equation and consider a different concept that because you're providing spiritual care, this is what's happening. Does that make sense? It's a natural consequence of doing a good job. Yeah. And it has to happen. So there's no getting around it. I think um, how much we have... How, what am I doing wrong here? 
How about if I just move it over here? Yeah. Okay, thank you. So um, it's a little bit like there's just an accumulation. And so the question is, how do you practice with the accumulation? And so if you picture a continuum of one to ten, and there's no zero because you're engaging with other people in their difficulty. You know. So one, two, you know, but when you become a five, a six, a seven, eight, and you're trending to higher numbers, and you will learn over time to, you know, and I think Christina's given a great tool for measuring your, your number, you know. Um, how do you lower your number? How do you attend to the impact? How do you uh, practice with that? Yeah. So I want to talk about some very practical things to do that you might consider as incorporating into your, into your development, um, into your ongoing service, um, wherever this is taking you. Um, when I was first training as a chaplain and things would happen people would say well it sounds like you need to do some self-care and that was the end of the conversation (laughs) and I was like so I never heard the term before and I was like okay or people would like leave early and be like I need to go do self-care you know I was like okay so it never really I never really had to explain to me how do you do it (laughs) um so then I went on to learn more about some of the science um, that's been uncovered um, regarding uh, what is uh, clinically called compassion fatigue. Compassion fatigue. And what can, you can define a little bit cursely as secondary trauma, which is to say that if I'm with somebody in trauma, depending on the intensity of that, then I am, it's transferred to me. I pick some up. They're radioactive, and I was close to them, so I got some. Does that make sense? Yeah. No blame, just, it, it just happens, yeah. Um, so I think it's our responsibility to understand the phenomena and work with it ongoingly. Yeah. And, and a lot of different professions and even in healthcare, people are, this has been, it's a bit of a, it's a trending subject in healthcare systems. You know, sustainability. How do we sustain ourselves given what we're engaging with on a regular basis, which is trauma? And I would say the same is true of the prison industrial complex. And as somebody mentioned earlier, everybody's traumatized by the environment, you know, not just the, the people who are incarcerated. Um, I uh, traveled this week on an airplane on a red eye and I didn't sleep and as I was going through the airport I was pretty tired and then I had physical pain like my knee was wobbly in my back and yada 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 and I noticed my diminished capacity in engaging with other people just between when I got off the plane to when I got in the rental car you know, and I had to because I like to greet people. I like to make some contact if I can, particularly with like people that I am near. I don't mean like in the restroom, I'm like bring, creating a conversation, you know, but, you know, and I, I couldn't do it the same way. I was so tired. I was like, oh, I can't even look at them. 
you know, like by the, by the, you know, the guy who in the really cold weather picked up my bag and helped me onto the shuttle, you know, I realized I don't want any eye contact right now because I'm so, I'm so empty. And I thought, this is like a little microcosm of compassion fatigue. You know, it, I just, it's a capa- diminished capacity, you know, and, and it just was a lack of sleep in, on that moment. So I don't know how parents do it <laughs> with kids <laughs> through the night, years and years and years. <laughs> I guess you build strength. So here are mm, seven things that I think you can do to lower your score, your number. One is uh, rest, or what I might call holy rest. Um, napping, sitting, yoga, having a day when you don't look at electronics, or a day by yourself, you know, or um, going out and doing something really fun and really silly, you know, that's completely enjoyable. So rest, yeah, rest. Just rest, whatever that looks like for you. And to build that in, just rest. A second one is um, to reflect, uh, to think about it, to, in shorthand, process it. So the exercise we just did where you visualized, meditated upon an, an incident, and then felt it, remembered it, and then did some writing, that was reflection, you know. And also in your papers, the, particularly the action reflection paper, you know, it's a way of, um, in some ways, I feel like it's, it's water on a sponge that needs to soak into the sponge. You know, the reflection helps it just soak in, yeah. Um, also spiritual direction, uh, talking with peers. Um, like you said earlier, Joe, like just talking with people about something helps, you know, yeah. Um, most um, chaplains who work full-time are in some form of therapy or spiritual direction on a regular basis, and it's just a folded-in cost to doing the work, yeah. You know. it, and and um, as a spiritual teacher said, uh, you don't dig the well when the house is on fire, so, you know, you don't wait to be have a high number to then, you know, it's, it's better to just build it in, I think, you know, build it in. Um, so that's reflection. A third one is um, rejuvenating your spirit. Um, in some ways you might think that, like, I'm a well and I'm pulling water out, right? The care, the compassion. But I need an aquifer, to fill me. You know, the wells are not filled from the top. I used to think somebody just poured water in them or the rain went in them and then it came out. But there's actually something underneath the well that, that creates that. So whatever refills you, you know, and this is different for everybody, you know, nature. Eating really delicious, overpriced, foody foods. Um, a retreat writing, singing, dancing, 12-step groups, whatever. Just what fills you. And there's no expenditure. Like um, when I go to my sangha, um, 
and with the community I'm in, I'm very clear when I go in. <laughs> I don't like it when it's not like this. I'm like, I'm here to receive. I'm here to be a student. I am dry and I'm here to be moistened. You know, I'm not here to moisten others. You know, I'm not here to care for others. You know, and I get a little miffed when it, I start doing that. You know, or it starts happening. You know, um, I want to be the freshman, the sophomore. You know, I don't. I, and a couple times I went up to the front of the room to do some stuff early on. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that here. I want to be filled here. And I don't mean like I'm a customer, and that's like you know the clerk has to provide a service, but it's just I'm very clear on why I'm in my seat and, and what I'm trying to do. You know? um, so whatever refills you, whatever floats your boat, whatever blows your skirt up, you know, however you want to say it, you just got to do more. You got to double down, pretty much. You got to double down, you know, double down. Probably, proportionally, <laughs> Juliana's laughing at me. She's thinking about doubling down. Um, but just, you know, and this is not like hedonism, you know, this is not, you know, it's just, it's just physics, fill the well, fill the well, replenish, rejuvenate. Uh, Fourth one is ritual. Yes, these are all going to begin with an R. So ritual, um, of containment. So sometimes it feels almost like I've put rocks in my pockets by being with people. You know, just picture rocks. I'm picking up rocks. I need to take those rocks out and I need to put them somewhere rather than keep them in my pockets. Because guess what I'm going to do tomorrow or next week? Put more rocks in my pocket. You know, so I need a place, a system. And ritual does this. Ritual transforms us from one place through its liminality to another place. Um, and so spiritual practice, um, personal rituals, like, you know, I know some people who are like, I leave my name badge by the door when I go home, and I don't, that's my clue to stop thinking about work if I can, you know. And then when I pick it up on my way out the door, you know. Or um, I, some people will say, I, I write down the first names of people in every season, um, I collect, I've collected them in a basket and then I, I take those papers and I, you know, create a little bonfire on my patio or somewhere and I, I let them go. Or I, I put them in the recycle with a dedication, you know, like um, all that kind of stuff. How can you bring it somewhere else or share it with others? So um, to um, join in group prayer, you know, and and most you know, faith groups in their liturgical calendar have a time of year when there's releasing. You know, I, I think in uh, in Japan it's called Oban, when when the lanterns are filled and put on the water, and it's a ceremony of remembrance and of letting go. You know, um, uh, in uh, but you can't do it once a year. You can kind of do little things and then do something also once a year. So like I, I often have pieces of paper related to my service work and at the end of the year, I burn them. You know, like, all right, lately I have not been able to burn them. I've been short a bonfire, so um, I've been just taking them to the recycled pen. And, yeah. 
And one year, uh, I think you probably remember, Paul, I, I had name cards for all the people I'd been caring for mm-hmm. at Zen Hospice. And there were all these names, you know, um, to think just visually about all that comes. And so we need to put it somewhere. We need to put it somewhere. Yeah. So ritual. I think also talking to somebody else is a modern day ritual, you know, to just debrief something or to um, catch an eye, you know, and be like, we're in this together, you know. Um, silence too, yeah. I, like I like care meetings that begin with silence and end with silence because that to me feels like we're creating, we're remembering our intention and then at the end we're, we're not holding it tightly, we're releasing it to whatever is for me, you know, a, a power greater than myself, you know. Uh, so, the begin, you know, and that's part of our, our norm too, I'd say, in, in this part of the world in Dharma. So ritual. The next one is to um, reevaluate uh, your goals and abilities. Like I heard Christina saying, you know, that you reevaluated your abilities. You know, <laughs> what can I do, you know? And your goals, you know, and your plans. So have to be open to revision, like reevaluating, really reevaluating. Is this working? Yeah. Is this working? And I and I think that one of the things that I like about teaching this course and offering it to you is that we're giving you an experience of the nature of something, so that you can then consider: Am I suited to it? You know, how do you know if you're suited to it with something unless you just engage it to some degree, you know? So my hope is always by the end of this course, I don't, you know, it's more important to me that you know what this is and consider whether you're suited to it than if you've written all your papers. You know, like, <laughs> I'm more invested in your understanding what this is and considering it for yourself and whether your papers are done. For example, but do your papers. <laughs> for yourself. And then from that comes a revising, you know. I'm going to revise my plan or a renewal. You know, like and in Zen there's a full moon ceremony where you kind of retake the Bodhisattva vow, you know. And it's, it's a ritual. So some, these, some of these things happen all at once too. They're not separate things. So like it's a, it's a ritual of um, acknowledging um, and then confessing and then expressing remorse, and then uh, retaking the vow, you know, knowing full well I will be back in the acknowledging and remorsefulness because of my human nature, but to, to, to retake it, you know, to re-up. You know. um, and I think we see this in this training too, that you know, um, sometimes people way in are really clear like oh now that I have some idea I'm catching up on my 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 whatever it is or I, I'm going to more of my peer group like there's a renewal that can come um, so anniversaries you know uh, I you know every year I just remember the time of year when I was ordained you know I actually just got an email from the person who ordained me out of the blue after about 15 years so I'm looking forward to being in touch with him. And then last is refining your spirituality or your theology or your Buddhology. What do I actually think is true? And this brings us back to earlier in the day. 
what's really true? What is the truth? What's my truth? What's their truth? You know, this was just an idea. I like the idea of um, so I, I remember once upon a time I heard the key to your heart is locked in the heart of another. A really nice idea. But is it true? Am I liberated when I serve others? Or when others, when I have contact with other people at a heart-to-heart level? Do I feel liberated from that? You know? Well, I figured out that, yes, for me, that is absolutely true. And so that, you know, I, I just know, you know. If somebody says, say, well, um, the more you meditate, the more compassionate you become, I'm still not sure about that one. For me, you know. I think it's true, and I think I'm mostly unwilling to do it. <laughs> you know, I'm like, and so this is one of my own little rubrics, you know. Um, but the jury, I'm still, I still haven't experienced that, you know what I mean? I think now, this far in doing stuff, um, miracles, I believe in miracles. I can't explain them. But there are things that happen that I'm I'm just stunned and I can't, I'm like and not everything's a miracle. So like, you know, if you go to Whole Foods and get my favorite drink and bring it back to me, I'm not going to think, "Oh, that's a miracle." You know, like uh uh you know, I um I just saw my sister and she was vulnerable uh with me in a way that she's never been since we were kids. I don't know how it happened, but to me it's rather miraculous, you know, rather miraculous that she would cry, you know. Um, just stunning to me, just stunning, you know. So I believe in her. So anyways, you've got to think about what, what's true. And so this is why we're having you do the paper on your Buddhology, that your next big writing assignment is to write about, you know, all, given all this, you know, here's, within the Dharma even, what do I think, you know. Um, and I think in this course, I would say what I've seen and learned from the paramitas, the paramis, is that they do work to uh, develop as a chaplain and to sustain you as a chaplain. So, you know, I would say that's true. I've seen that. Um, and uh, uh, understanding the mind and um, koan practice and some of the other things that people love to do within this pantheon, you know, they're not closest to me. I I don't turn to them. So what do you turn to really quickly? So that's seven R's. And I I will put this list on the website in case you didn't miss an, if you missed an R. And um, I'll now take a few minutes for um, clarification or whatever after I check the time. So what's our ending time? 12.15? I'm doing good? Mm-hmm. All right. Let me take a breath. <sighs> Those are all the R's together. <sighs> so... Clarification, question, complaint. 
it, it may not make sense to you, but I just want to give you this as a framework to, to consider going forward. Yeah. And there, there, maybe there's one that feels like, oh, I'm already in, innately doing that or I've already figured that out. And then maybe something seems really bizarre. And um, So I'm checking on that. I have a question. Mm-hmm. Did these come to you as you looked back on when you asked yourself, what am I doing in terms of self-care? Or did some of them come to you because someone else said to you, you know, here's a couple of things you really would, would help you to think about. Mm. I think they, they, I just started doing them. Somebody might have said, you know, like at Zen Hospice I learned about writing down names and then doing something with them at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. So like I learned that and so then I've incorporated that. Others... I just started doing. And then when I went to teach this session, I came up with these seven things. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just kind of just, oh, okay, and I can get them all into ours. You know, I don't know why I was thinking that was so clever. But I'd say I was shown, and then some were just innately happening. I remember the theology one, uh, a not-so-great supervisor in my first unit of CPE, rather provocatively saying, well, what is your theology? (laughs) And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know if I have one. And I had not learned how to identify that, you know. And he actually didn't really, he just, and I said, well, what's a theology? You know, (laughs) we went from there, you know. It was rather striking, really striking. And, And then I realized, oh, you know, I didn't go to a Christian seminary. This is also kind of a, a Christian seminary uh, rhetoric that I don't know, or, you know, the lexicon that I don't know, you know. He, if it had been a Buddhist supervisor, he might have said, well, you know, which, which aspects of the Dharma do you think about when you're in a crisis or what's, you know, what skillful means for you? And somebody might say meditate and I might say what, whatever, yeah, mm-hmm. Good question. Hope I was able to answer it. And I'd say it's a developmental process as well. It's not an acquisition. So I have an ob- observation. Um, over the summer I did CPE at the VA, and every week we did an on cost. So not only did you 40 hours, but you had to stay the night for 24 um, sometimes 32, sometimes 36 <laughs> hours. And so you get caught up in this process where time gets distorted, and I notice that my practices fall behind, and we're just there day after day after day. Um, how, do you, how do you make that time when the organization requires so much out of you. I think it's wise to build it in ahead of time. So if I know I'm going to be there for 36 hours, then I'm not having dinner with anybody that day. And my weekly whatever, I'm going to be sure I don't miss and I ask for help to get there. And then there's one thing I'm going to let go of for this cycle. You know, fortunately, it's not every day. You know what I mean. But I, I pre-plan. I pre-plan, and then I hold myself accountable usually by telling somebody else, so they can ask me, "Did you 
Did you have a quiet no, no, night at home and get that bath in you were telling me about? Yeah. For me, because I'm a socialized introvert, so somebody else might be like, I want to go dance with a hundred people tonight and just lose, get out of my head and get in my body, you know, so it, it varies, but um, pre-planning. And then um, the spiritual practice part, I, I think to myself, well, being here and doing this is my practice. <laughs> so... Um, the, 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 the first R of rest is, I struggle with, um, you know, I kind of get wrapped up in this monastic state of mind. So like, cause I don't know a lot of monastics. I know a lot of monastics very peripherally. And, and so I have this, this thing that, you know, you never rest. You're like on it like all the time and finally about nine o'clock I just go you know I'm just going to watch TV you know I just um, I'm going to watch The Good Place (laughs) it's it's funny and it's light and it's taken me a while not to feel guilty about that so um, walking in nature is an acceptable kind of rest Watching TV is not an acceptable kind of rest. And I haven't written, I haven't read a piece of fiction in years because that's not an acceptable kind of rest. So I'm really reevaluating what is rest? What is that? Do you feel. So this is interesting because you're talking about practicing in the Tibetan stream, right? You talk, you practice in the Tibetan stream primarily. So what I, in listening to you, I think that's what you're describing, and that seems part of the culture, you know, that you're in. That's what I'm hearing. And uh, it's a great question: Is there rest in monastic training? Now. I'm sure one answer would be, well, we rest in every moment when we're present. So. (laughs) (coughs) I was sitting, you know. It was also a form of rest, but there's lots of forms. So I, I invite you to keep us posted. And I will say this work does cause that kind of challenge to your primary spiritual community mm-hmm. inside and, yeah. and, and uh, confrontation with yourself about... I would use the microphone because... Oh, oh, please, go ahead, Christina. Because this, because this work takes, uh, has such an impact on us, it does require us, or it surfaces this kind of confrontation with our spiritual communities, which are thinking about and are designed around a different approach to work that doesn't um, always anticipate such intensive crisis-oriented or traumatic situation-oppressive 
kinds of institutions that we're engaging with. It doesn't, you know, a monastic community is not going out to the prisons every day in this this way. And if it is, I imagine the monastic rule would adjust itself for the health of the monks and the nuns. But so, so it requires a different kind of confrontation with your own authority and and that it's challenging. Yeah, what renews your spirit, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, two belief systems that are in, in conflict there, yeah. Take me out to the park. Buy me some peanuts. Yeah, I have a <laughs> more an observation, but I might segue in this unapolog- unapologetic gushing a little bit. Is that okay? I'll, I'll make it short. Sure. <laughs> now you've got it. Like praise, right? <laughs> praise. Um, but seriously, I, uh, I I became a facilitator in training for a grip group in Avenal. And it's like it so far overshadows any type of service commitment I've ever made, and it's not even funny. It's like whoa, like you know, so much. Oh, what did I get myself into? And this is like too good to be true, you know. Um, or more to the point, it's what I've always really desired, you know, for my own fulfillment. But um, everything is so incredibly apropos. I, it is so pertinent. And um, what you guys teach, and, and it feels like, a, literally, I don't mean to romanticize, but it feels like I'm just sort of walking in the midair, and there's, there's a spot for my foot every time. You know, what with the patience and with the meditation, and um, it's never become more pertinent to me. Like letting go when you're reading um, letters from violent offenders who are incarcerated. It's not, oh, maybe I should let this go. No, it's ritual, and it's letting it through me and out of me, you know, and it's just, uh, um, I'm, I'm really, really grateful. It's just, y'all are such a class act, and <laughs> I just had to say it. Thank you. And, you know, all of the training so far has brought us to the point where this is a good time to teach this. You know, we, we can't talk about this in October. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the development, you know. You have this experience now to for, to put this, these thoughts, ideas, and practices in place. That's cool. Twelve thirteen. I'm just going to look around the room and say hi to everybody. Fingers are pointing. Hello. Um, I, I hope this is okay. I probably was going to actually talk to you about this, but um, I developed an in-service course for burned-out teachers and taught it for five years. And so I brought some materials. I have here, it's called a Maslock Burnout Inventory. And I had plenty of forms, and I thought, why not bring If anybody wants to, I'd be glad to give you a form if you want to find out how burned out you are. It's it's really quite good. <clears throat> I have the educator's version, but it works. Okay. So I just you know I meant to ask you if that was okay, but um, it, it's very quite useful because you think you're burned out and you take and say, hey, I'm not, I'm doing okay. Or, That'd be a great tool for us. To, and you know, if you have something electronic, if you send it to me, I'll post it on the website. 
I was thinking, yeah, there is a compassion fatigue inventory yeah. too. Yeah. So it'd be great. Yeah. Them, yeah. Right. And we'll use them. Great. Well, you can. I don't. I don't have it electronic. I have it okay, right great. here as a form. Sure. You know, if somebody wanted to even give it to me later, I can give you the scores. But there's three. It's a very short form, and there's three criteria. I'd say let's let's offer them to people, and people can then you know self. At lunchtime, I'll just put them on a table. Yeah, if we'll you just want. put them on a chair right there. Is usually where a good place for handouts. So thank you for that offering. And if there are other offerings along this line, you can let me know, and I'd be happy to you know, put them up um, for, to share with all in, in a way that, you know, works. Okay, I have 30 seconds. I think the timing of this is perfect because I walked out of the hospital last Wednesday saying, I don't know if I can do this. And I, I didn't even make it through the whole shift. Mm-hmm. I had to go and leave and just rest, sit, and that was it. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Appreciate it. I know you can do this. Nadine. I know you can do this. I have no doubt. Doubt away, but I don't have any doubt. I'm I'm reading your papers, so that's how I know. It's not just who you are here, but I'm reading your papers. I guess I have less than 30 seconds, but um, it just popped into my head. I think Frank, um, um, his five invitations, one of them is uh, rest in the middle of things, Um, something like that. And uh, I just find that super helpful um, because I used to always partition everything, you know. It's like after I have a horribly stressful day, then I can rest. It's like, how can I rest in the middle of what I'm doing? And I went to a very powerful museum. It was very intense content. That's what the T-shirt is that I have on. And, uh, sorry, I took little tiny rests while I was there. Great. So it's just an example. Great. Thank you. Okay. Let's end there. Thank you all. There will be more information posted to the course website. And thank you for a full, rich morning. And uh, we'll come back in an hour. Okay? Great. Have a good lunch.